A South Carolina children's choir rendition of the national anthem gets interrupted by Capitol Police. A federal judge overturns Tennessee's ban against children being exposed to sexually explicit material. And Representative Comer will finally get to see an FBI document that was subpoenaed over a month ago. You're listening to Truth and Politics and Culture with Dr. Tony Beam, and it's time to crank it up. Welcome in. It's a brand new week, and we're going to get started off with uh, the top stories, some of the top stories of the day, at least, and we appreciate you joining us. Of course, you know, if you're listening to the program live, how to do it. You go to drtonybeam.com. That's drtonybeam.com. And you can click the Listen Live button, and you can listen to the program live wherever you are. You can also go to YouTube or to Facebook if you'd like to see my face. Uh, while we're doing the program, you can uh, check it out there at either one of those locations. The Facebook page is Christian Worldview with Dr. Tony Beam. Uh, we're, I'm working on getting the name of that changed so it matches the show. But uh, right now, just go to Christian Worldview with Dr. Tony Beam. And then on YouTube, you can just look for me, Truth and Politics and Culture with Dr. Tony Beam, and you should be able to find it if you want to, if you'd like to view the program. Uh, any help you can give me in, in promoting the program uh, would be appreciated. This is a new show. Uh, we're trying to grow the program. Uh, we're going to be taking some steps, hopefully beginning in the next couple of weeks, to begin to promote the program past just the folks who already know, know about it. Um, I'm going to be at the South Carolina, not the South Carolina, let's expand that a little bit, at the Southern Baptist Convention meeting in New Orleans beginning next week. I'll be leaving on Saturday and won't be coming back until uh, probably late that next Thursday night. But I am going to be doing the show from New Orleans. So if you're um, you know, kind of addicted to the show, don't worry. You can get your fix. Uh, I'll be doing the show from probably from the hotel room from 7.30 to 8.30, and the podcast will be available. Of course, you can always get the podcast by going to wherever you get podcasts. You can go to Apple Podcasts. You can go to Spotify. Um, anywhere podcasts are available and just search for Tony Beam or search for Truth and Politics and Culture with Dr. Tony Beam and you should be able to find it and you can subscribe for free. All you have to do is follow. There's really not a subscription. Um, you follow the program and it'll automatically download to your smart device and you can listen to it at your leisure. Leisure, actually. Um, all right, um, just a couple of housekeeping things. Um, some, some people are asking me, you know, I used to, when I introduced myself on the radio, I always started out with this big, long introduction about uh, who I am and what I do. And I've kind of, I, I haven't done that as much with the new format, but occasionally um, I do want to take a minute to remind people that I work at North Greenville University where Christ makes the difference. I serve there as the director, senior director of church and community engagement and public affairs. I also work for the South Carolina Baptist Convention. I serve as the director of the Office of Public Policy, and I'm honored and privileged and blessed by God to be able to do interim pastor at work. So 
I'm able to go into churches that are looking for pastors that for whatever reason their pastor retired or moved on to another church, whatever. Uh, sometimes churches make the decision for the pastor to move on. But whatever the, cir- the circumstance, uh, then I serve as interim pastor until a pastor can be found. And it gives me opportunities to preach and teach God's Word, which I, I love to do. And so I'm serving right now at Five Forks Baptist Church in Simpsonville. So if you don't have a church home and on Sunday morning you're thinking, you know, I really ought to be in church somewhere, I ought to at least go check out, see what church is all about, uh, come and hear me preach. Uh, my preaching is, I don't want to say that it's comp- it's different from what I do here. It's just that when I preach a sermon or preach a message, I'm focused on a passage of Scripture, and I'm talking about that during the time that I have to present the message. And here, I talk about things from a wide range. I mean, we, we try to deal, as you know, if you listen to the program, I try to deal with things that are in the news, making news, um, and try to do that from a Christian worldview or a biblical perspective, uh, certainly. All right, let's start with some controversies today that are coming up out of Pride Month. Um, it, there's no question that in many corners of our country— um, and I don't know, when you say corner of our country, sometimes that insinuates that it's being done in private. But what's happening with our children in the LGBTQ agenda is certainly being done in public. Um, it's, it, it's amazing that a lot of our children are being targeted during Pride Month through the school system to try to teach them sexuality by the LGBTQ plus guidelines. In other words, sexuality as it relates to the LGBTQ plus community, to make it mainstream, to make it to our children, to seem like this is uh, perfectly normal and this is the way human beings relate to each other. Parents actually want to have a say-so in this. They don't want their young children or their minor children exposed to sexually explicit material that is inappropriate for them regardless of the sexual topic. I mean, whether you're talking about heterosexual sex, whether you're talking about um, same-sex relationships or transgender issues, parents, not school officials, want the parents believe that they're the ones that should decide when their children are taught these things, and they should be the main ones to talk to their children about it. And, of course, this battle has been going on now for quite some time, Uh, The battle in Florida, where Florida successfully passed a law uh, under Governor DeSantis' leadership that simply says that elementary school children up to third grade cannot be presented sexual alternative information in the classroom or sexually explicit material. Not once does the law say anything about gay, and yet you have all these people running around saying it's the don't say gay bill, Because that, from a propaganda standpoint, that is easier to get people riled up about. Uh, They think that if they can convince enough people that the purpose of the bill is to keep people from being able to say gay or any such thing, then they can do better at ginning up the population. But, But what's true about the bill in Florida is it simply prevents explicit material from being presented. It gives parents the right to make that decision, those decisions about their children and what they're going to see and hear and when. 
And it's a very, very popular law in Florida. And of course, we know what it led to. It led to a big fight with Disney that's still going on because Disney came out and tried to interfere, tried to uh, gin up people to move against the law, and it didn't work very well. And then Governor, in other words, it was still a very popular bill when it was passed by the legislature. It did pass. It was signed into law by the governor. It's still in effect. And then the governor decided, well, if Disney, if Disney is not going to be an entertainment industry, if they're going to be a political movement or they're going to be a political organization and they're going to decide that they're going to step into the arena of governing and try to influence it, then maybe they shouldn't have their special status in Florida, which was granted to them as essentially their own little fiefdom. I mean, Disney could operate operated with its own government rules apart from the state of Florida, and it was a special privilege given to them because of the amount of of tourist dollars that they brought into the state of Florida and the fact that Disney is such a large organization that it seemed better at the time for them to operate under their own rules as long as they were operating as an entertainment facility, an entertainment industry, and not becoming extremely involved in politics. So once they crossed that line, DeSantis said, okay, um, if you're going to get involved in politics, then I'll show you what being involved in politics is like. We'll we'll just suspend your um, ability to make your own rules. Uh, you can't ab- abuse that privilege. You can't say that you want to make your own rules in order to draw people to Florida as an entertainment facility, an entertainment complex, and then turn around and use your influence in a political fight in the state. And so that battle is ongoing. And of course, it's Pride Month and Disney, um, because so many of their employees are LGBTQ+, uh, Disney is all in on, on what's going on with Pride Month. Recognitions, they're, they're having Pride Day, at, um, and I'm sure more than just a day of celebrations at both uh, parks, Disneyland in California and Disney World in Florida. So um, the battle continues. And another place that it has, has, has been going on or raging uh, pretty well is in the state of Tennessee, where Matt Walsh, who has been absolutely the leading commentator to rally people against transgender surgery for minors, against uh, you know, transgender um, cross-hormone treatments, puberty-blocking drugs. He's, he's really come out with the video, uh, What is a Woman?, and behind that has been a strong voice advocating that children should be protected from this kind of thing. And, of course, it started out with um, a hospital in Tennessee that I think is Vanderbilt University that was actually involved in transgender, minor, uh, transgender surgery on minors. That came to a halt once Matt Walsh shined a spotlight on it and got enough people to care about it. And then a bill was passed by the Tennessee legislature known as the Adult Entertainment Act, and it banned what the bill described as adult cabaret as well as other sexually explicit performances that include male or female impersonators on public property or anywhere children can view it. And the bill allows for violators to be charged with a misdemeanor for their first offense. And the second offense is actually a felony 
a second offense, and subsequent offenses. The act was signed into law by Tennessee Governor Bill Lee back in March. Now, I'm going to tell you, on Friday, well, let's go ahead and get into this part of it. On Friday evening, a federal judge agreed with the LGBT group that sued the state over the law. The judge, Thomas Parker, who was appointed by President Trump, I don't know why we have to always say who the president was who appoints a judge once we talk about a judge's decision, decision, but that's how the news reports it, so that's how I'm going to report it. He's a Trump appointee. He ruled that the law was unconstitutionally vague and substantially overbroad and would result in discriminatory enforcement. Now, I'm going to crawl out on a limb here, okay? First of all, I think we should have laws. I want to be crystal clear about this that there should be laws in place that protect minors from sexually explicit material. In fact, this judge, in his ruling, he, he said, look, obscene material is not protected under the First Amendment. But he said there was a substantial difference between material that is obscene in the vernacular and material that is obscene under the law. Um, I don't agree with that. I mean, I, I think that that statement is um, it is, a, is a little bit convoluted. I mean, obscene is obscene. Whether it's something that is publicly accepted as obscene material or whether it's something that once the law recognizes material that is obscene, decides to ban it, it's still obscene material. And once, as a judge, you step in, you put on your robe and you step up and you speak as a judge and you say, look, this is obscene, this material is obscene. And then you rule that even though it's obscene, it's okay for children to view it. That's a contradiction. I mean, it's a clear contradiction. You can't have A, B, both A and non-A at the same time. We talk about this in in philosophical arguments, the law of non-contradiction. Two things can't be true at the same time and in the same way, or false in the say at the same time in the same way. In other words, true and false, I should say. They can't contradict each other. And and this is a contradictory statement for the judge to say, look, yes, obscene material, it doesn't fall under the First Amendment, unless you're talking about obscene material that deals with LGBTQ themes. And then that material can be viewed by minors, even though obscene material otherwise is not protected under the First Amendment. But this material is. Now, if that's if if that can, doesn't confuse you, then you're a lot smarter than I am because it confuses me. But here's what I will say about the law: when you look at the wording of the law, adult cabaret as well as other sexually explicit performances that include male or female impersonators on public property or anywhere children can view it is outlawed. One of the examples that the judge used, and I think it's an over. I think it's overstated, but he did say, what if you had a female Elvis impersonator? And, you know, if you go down to Myrtle Beach here in South Carolina, if you go to any of these places, there are clubs, there are places where you can go pay for dinner, and then you see a show, and you have men uh, who are singing like Barbara Streisand, Uh, you have women who dress up as male characters, and they sing and they do cabaret-type shows. Uh, Now, you know, the question is, should you be taking children to see that? Um, in my opinion, I don't think that's the best environment for them to be in for entertainment. 
But are you going to arrest those people for doing something that's obscene or explicit simply by the fact that they're dressing up as the opposite gender and singing show tunes um, as entertainment for dinner? I mean, if there's a chance that people that are engaging in that kind of behavior that has no sexually explicit material but is simply um, cross-gender dressing as entertainment purposes, if you're going to start arresting those people, I think that would be taking the law too far. I think the intent of this law is to protect minors from sexually explicit material, and I think it should have spelled that out maybe a little bit clearer. In other words, drag queens that are... Uh, going into public libraries and and um, doing sexually explicit things, um, portraying or mimicking sexually explicit behavior in front of minors while they're reading children's books. This is the kind of thing that this law was designed to prevent in the state of Tennessee. And I think most people, I'll, I'll go as far as to say most people would say that that's absolutely something that they don't want their children to be involved in. But when you expand it, I, I think what they were trying to do is they were trying to make sure they were thinking about different venues in vacation spots in Tennessee, maybe Gatling, Gatlinburg, Pigeon Forge, where some of this stuff might be going on um, where children are involved and it could be sexually explicit in nature and should be only viewed by adults. So they kind of put all of that together. Rather than being specific about cutting off drag queens going to libraries and presenting sexually explicit material, they tried to be broader in their application and to make sure that that wasn't happening anywhere in the state. Now, we may applaud that, but when it comes to the law, you can run into problems if a law is overbroad or not and or vague and not specific because the danger is that people who are not engaged in anything that would be considered sexually explicit could be caught under this law and be arrested and charged with a crime um, and that would be a miscarriage of justice it would also it would as as the judge said it could lead to discriminatory enforcement, which police officers and prosecutors have to make a decision. They've got to read the law, and then they've got to decide, okay, uh, since it says cabaret entertainment or um, any, any kind of cross-dressing in, in front of minors, if you've got children going with their parents to see one of these um, Elvis impersonator shows or one of these other shows, is, is that a violation of the law, and are we going to prosecute it? I think most police and most prosecutors, most prosecutors in just, just about every case, can look at this and know the difference between what's obscene and what's innocent. Um, but the judge said no. Because of the law, the way the law is written, that it's, it, the broad scope of the law would allow people to get caught up in it that should not be caught up in it. And so that's how the law got overturned by this judge. Now, what's interesting, the judge's ruling only strikes down the law for one county, Shelby County, because that's where the lawsuit was brought in Shelby County. It didn't cover the entire state. But obviously, this judge's decision is going to be used to expand this ruling across the entire state of Tennessee. They're going to try to strike the whole thing down. 
Supporters of the measure say that they have a duty, and this is primarily Republicans in the Tennessee legislature. They say, look, we've got a duty constitutionally mandated to and a responsibility by the Constitution in Tennessee to protect children from sexually explicit content. Most Democrats in Tennessee, not all, but most, are coming back and saying, look, um, this, this is a free speech issue, and it violates the First Amendment. And for now, Judge Parker has ruled in their favor. Uh, he basically said that, you know, free speech means free, whether it's protection for political, artistic, scientific. I don't know why he threw that in there. But uh, I guess if, if people are challenging um, evolution or people are saying that evolution is absolutely a fact, I, I guess from a scientific standpoint that that's why that got included. But he said that the law could be misused. So this is going to be a continued fight. Tennessee's Attorney General Jonathan Scarmitti has vowed to appeal the ruling, and he's, at, he's got the backing right now of Republican Senate Majority Leader Jack Johnson. Uh, Representative Johnson um, called the ruling a victory for those who support exposing children to sexually explicit entertainment. To me, this sounds like simply a tweaking of the law. It looks like the legislature could go back, change a little bit of the wording of the law, make it more, make it more specific, make sure that it's not broad enough that it could bring into it some, some of the entertainment that's taking place that we may not, everybody may not like, but is not sexually explicit, nor does it promote transgenderism. Um, I, I think that if they were to do that, that the law wouldn't have any problems. Now, it may not have any problems anyway. Um, this judge's ruling, like we said, affects Shelby County only, and so it, there's going to be a, a big battle over whether this is going to be shut down. The law will be restricted in the entire state of Tennessee, and there'll be plenty of opportunity for arguments to be made and opportunity, if the legislature needs to, to tweak the law to make it more acceptable for the courts. Now, there's also some serious pushback going on in California where Los Angeles Public School District announced an assembly commemorating Pride Month for all K-12 through students. Now, the L.A. Public School District is the second largest district in the country, um, and the assembly that they're planning would be a celebration of all gender identities as well as public reading of the Great Big Book of Families, which is a pro-LGBTQ children's book. And this is for everyone in LA count in LA K through 12. So you've got kindergarten students who are going to have to sit through an assembly that celebrates gender identities, teaching these young children that there's that the, the differences between men and women essentially don't exist and that you can choose your gender. And this is why a lot of parents were getting upset on Friday over a hundred Parents in California, in Los Angeles, protested. They were wearing shirts saying, leave our kids alone. Parental rights matter. You know, that's one of the main things here is that parents feel like, and justifiably so, that in the home, they're the ones who get to make the decisions about sexual content, about when their children are mature enough to understand and to hear about sexually uh, or sexual content, sexual uh, subjects to be able to talk about them. And they don't want those subjects 
introduced to kindergarten students or students that are minors in the L.A. public school system through an assembly controlled by adults that don't have the responsibility to raise their children. Several of the parents spoke out to the media about this. In fact, one parent was pretty vocal about what her opposition was about, and she was clear that it had nothing to do with hate for anybody. Teach our kids on our terms. My seven-year-old son don't need to know what sex is about. That's it. I want to teach my kids on my term. There's nothing wrong with these people. Who said we hate them? There's no such thing. Okay. In other words, hate has nothing to do with this, she's saying. This is about me. She was very clear. She said, I want to teach my children about sexuality on my terms, not the school's terms. And, I, you know, I, I think what? 90%? I'm going to go out on a limb here and say 90% of parents would agree with her that that's what they're looking for. They want to be in control. A seven-year-old, she says, my seven-year-old doesn't need to be told about sex. And then she said, that's it. That's it. I If, if I'm going to teach them anything about sexuality, I'm going to decide when they're old enough and mature enough to receive it. Now, the protest turned violent when counter-protesters arrived, and the counter-protesters, who of course were pushing for LGBTQ plus material, being taught to kindergarten students, they tried to block the parents from walking on the sidewalk. Some punches got thrown, and the police intervened, but as far as we know, no one got arrested. I mean, the double standard here from top to bottom is infuriating. Infuriating. I mean, if the poli- if the police had shown up and there would have been uh, Christians who were the the counter protesters who showed up, and if any punches got thrown, I guarantee you there would have been Christians taken to jail, whether they were the ones that threw the punches or not, because it would have been an opportunity for the the police and for the authorities to basically make the statement that the people who are defending the rights of parents to make decisions about their own children, that they're the ones that are fostering hatred. But the police stepped in. They were able to stop the violence. And I think a little bit later, the protests broke up. Now, another thing that happened over the weekend, which is interesting, Daily Wire, which of course is um, one of the largest conservative streaming platforms out there. It's Ben Shapiro, Matt Walsh, um, and a host of others, Candace Owens. Daily Wire decided to stream Matt Walsh's What is a Woman? Because it, it's been, I think it's a year anniversary, and they wanted to get it out to as many people as possible. So they decided to screen it on Twitter. Well, initially, it was partially censored by Twitter. Twitter didn't didn't actually come out and say, well, we're not going to allow it to be seen at all, but they put warning labels on it and they restricted it to where it could only be seen by a certain number of people. But over the weekend, and as heading into the weekend, actually, Elon Musk got involved and removed what was then called the hateful conduct tag, and he linked the video to his 140 million followers, and he said simply, every parent should watch this. Then he pinned the tweet to the top of his page. And you know, you can imagine what happened. Over the weekend, millions watched the video. The final number on Sunday night, according to those who track this kind of thing, 
That video had been viewed over 160 million times. That is likely a record for Twitter. I'm not sure what the rec record for Twitter is, but I doubt very seriously, seriously there have been videos that have been viewed more than 160 million times. And so Matt Walsh's um, excellent documentary is getting out. I mean, it's, it's being heard. Uh, people are, and, and I think this, what's happening as a result is that sort of the conservative giant that is American traditional understanding of right and wrong is beginning to wake up in this country. There's a piece today at the Daily Signal by Victor Davis Hanson that talks about this. Um, I wanted to go through this because I think it forms a good backdrop, a good background, a follow-up to both of these stories about how now conservatives are actually beginning to wake up realize that they've allowed a cultural revolution to take place when it comes to sexuality, and now they're beginning to, to push back. Um, this, this piece starts out at Daily Wire, Conservatives and uh, Daily Signal, excuse me. This is the Daily Signal, which is Heritage Foundation. Conservatives and traditionalists are often exasperated at the ongoing woke cultural revolution in their midst. How can America be turned upside down as it is when there's little public support for the things happening around us? They don't see much backing for the current border policy and illegal immigration, yet it continues. Conservatives feel that most Americans reject the trend of biological men dominating female sports events. They fear American jurisprudence has become vastly weaponized and warped. Certainly, former President Donald Trump will be more likely indicted by a politicized New York prosecutor for supposedly overhauling his net worth, or overvaluing rather, his net worth over a decade ago than would be a current violent street criminal clubbing a subway commuter. I mean, this is, this is what people think. This is, uh, Hansen is right when he writes about this, about the frustration that rises among conservatives when they see these stories. Traditionalists, feel that the, the energy prices that we're seeing that are sky high, the out-of-control urban crime, a depressed economy, high interest rates, and a politicized FBI, CIA, Justice Department, and Pentagon are all needlessly self-created messes. And, and they ask the question every day, how did we get here? How did the country all of a sudden, which seemed to be moving in at least some kind of orderly fashion, how did we suddenly begin to embrace all these things? Now, I spent a good bit of time last week talking about the source of Pride Month and how all these corporations suddenly began to, uh, in one voice, um, embrace the LGBTQ plus agenda. And the reason for that had to do with these big investment companies that control most of the money that gets invested in the country. I'm not going to go back through that again, but BlackRock, um, Vanguard, and um, uh, there's, there's one other one that's not coming to mind, um, that are the three major investment companies that manage up to $20 trillion of investment money. Now, it's not their money, but they're managing this money that is invested by corporate America and by the banks. And so they, all you have to do essentially, is get these three massive finance organizations on board, and then that trickles down into the banking system, and that trickles down into corporate America, and rather than being a trickle-down, it's more of a waterfall. I mean, it happens very quickly. 
that corporate America begins to bend to the LGBTQ agenda and then begins to push it. And, and that's how that's happened so fast. But what about some of the other things that seems to happen so fast in our country without popular support? Conservatives, Hansen writes, by their nature and unlike the left, are more inclined to accept existing institutions rather than to radically alter or destroy them. Now, I would agree with that up to a point. I think conservatives are not very accepting right now of the FBI or the CIA or the Justice Department. I think they're, they're looking at those institutions and saying that they've been co-opted by um, anti-traditionalists, by people who are progressives, and those are being weaponized and used against traditional conservatives in this country. And I think there's plenty of evidence to look at that. Um, but here's, here's how conservatives usually engage in the culture war. They focus on nominating conservative judges. They don't focus on packing the court. Uh, they focus on taking back the Senate. They don't focus on bringing in new states that would bring in new senators like making Puerto Rico a state or making um, uh, D.C. a state, focusing on trying to find a way to get senators that would forever be progressive. Instead, what, what conservatives generally do is they go out and get involved in these Senate races. They pick conservative candidates. They try to get them elected through the primary and then elected to the, to the Senate to make decisions that match or reflect their values. Traditionalists, oftentimes, Hanson writes, feel like they don't have any time for politics. They prefer to focus on their families, their jobs, their communities, their churches. And until recently, they shunned boycotts. They abhor massing outside the homes of left-wing politicians and judges. See, I'm, I, I, I totally get that. As a conservative, as a Christian first, um, a conservative, which flows out of my Christian belief system, and a, more of a traditionalist, I, mean, I, I, you know, I spend a lot of time trying to provide for my family, trying to make a positive difference in the community, uh, trying to live up to expectations that are placed on me by the places where I work and to serve them well. I want to serve North Greenville University well. I want to serve the South Carolina Baptist Convention well. I want to serve Five Forks Baptist Church well. And in order to do that, I have to focus a lot of my time and energy to carry that out. And yet, it seems that progressives always have time to show up in large numbers to protest, to carry signs, to try to influence, and conservatives are getting up every day and going to try to make a difference in the country by going to work and making the country work. So basically, conservatives are beginning to wake up. They're, they've slept through what has become a woke revolution, Hansen says. And he says, yet suddenly they realize their apathy toward the country to descend into, is allowing the country to descend into something the nation's founders never imagined or intended and, are, and is antithetical to what most knew as America just a couple of decades ago. So now finally, conservatives are waking from their slumber and they're discovering that they too can boycott, agitate, and roar. Now, I know I'm going to be unpopular for what I'm about to say, but it's okay because I believe that it's rooted and grounded in the Scripture. 
when we roar. And I do think that conservatives should raise their voice to a level that they can be heard. But when we do that, we have to maintain a sense of decorum that is reflective of who we are as followers of Jesus Christ. And part of the problem is that Christians, when they step into the public arena, when they engage on social media, when they write letters to the editor, when they go and allow themselves to be interviewed by secular media, sometimes they come across, often, well, oftentimes, as being angry, as being um, contentious, and using name-calling. And I know a lot of people go, well, why do you care about name-calling? I mean, we're talking about the country here. We're talking about the country going down the toilet. You're concerned about name-calling? No, I'm concerned about upholding the name of Jesus Christ in the way that we communicate as believers. We're not going to, if we win a political battle and we lose our witness and our testimony to a lost and dying world, then that's, that's not a trade that any believer should be willing to make. But see, I believe that we can win these cultural and political battles by being winsome, by being firm, by stating the truth. I have no problem talking about the fact that it's a sin for children, I mean, not only a sin, but I mean, it's, it's a tragedy for children to be drawn into a, a system where they're made to question their gender, be given puberty blockers, cross hormone, hormone treatments, and be subse- uh, subjected to surgery at a young age to switch genders. I, I think that's a horrible thing. It's, it's sinful. It's wrong. And we have a responsibility as Christians to speak biblically of the fact that we are cre- that God created male and female for a reason, that that's the way that God's creation is supposed to work. I have no problem stepping up and making that statement and defending it. But when we cross the line and get into name-calling and anger and rhetoric that is fueled by the anger that we feel toward the people who are violating these things in our culture, then we, we, I think we lose the argument. We, we, we descend to the level that they're using when what we need is just a simple, straightforward statement that's backed up by our actions. And a lot of Christians in particular are beginning to do this. Uh, the Target Corporation, just to, in just a few days lost $10 billion in stock value. Why? Because millions of shoppers shunned Target's 2,000 stores after they showcased its pride apparel. And we're talking about tuck bathing suits that are intended to facilitate um, a woman who is trying to look like, uh, actually a man that's trying to look like a woman. Uh, This is, and, and the thing that really tore it for Target, I mean, the thing that caused a lot of conservatives to charge into this battle when before they haven't been willing to do it, the thing that made that happen was the fact that children were being targeted with the gay apparel. I mean, minors, uh, onesies that had rainbow flags or made statements that was supportive of transgender um, ideology. I mean, when that started to happen, that's when people said, you know, this is crazy. This is enough. These are our children, and they've got to be protected. 
And it's sad that we had to get to the point for the for conservatives and for some Christians to wake up about this, about what's being done to our culture, that it had to come to the children before we did it, but at least it's beginning to happen and that people are beginning to push back. They pushed back against Anheuser-Busch because they came up with this broad idea that Dylan Mulvaney would be the right person to come out and to hawk Bud Light. And... <laughs> I don't know who thought that would be that 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 would ever work. Um, I mean, you think about the the audience that they're playing to. That this is not these are not people that are going to be prime candidates to be supporters of Dylan Mulvaney, a man who's chosen to live like a woman, and to make money and to be a, a social media icon based on the fact that he's crossdresser, um, and he's living his life as a female. And Bud Light decided that this was a great marketing idea, and it's cost them $16 billion. Think about that. I mean, this is, this is much more than what Target has suffered, but of course, the Bud Light controversy has been going on a lot longer. Um, you know, and, and one of the things that makes this possible is that the Bud Light boycott's easy. I mean, if, you're, if you drink beer and you go into a store, um, and you're, here's Bud Light. Well, instead of picking up a Bud Light, you turn and there's a Coors or there's another brand or something else. You just, you just leave Bud Light alone. It's an easy thing to boycott because of the number of choices that are available. Now, when every com- company and corporation is doing some of the same things, then that makes it a little bit harder. And does Coors, does the Coors Company support in some way the LGBTQ plus agenda? I don't know. I would suspect that they do, but I don't know that for a fact. Maybe they don't. But here's the point. They're not putting it in the consumer's face. They're not advancing the agenda by having a spokesperson that is out there just in your face over it and basically saying, you're going to see this ad and you're going to like it. And you're going to support it because that's the way the LGBTQ um, proponents work. They basically say, this is who we are. We don't care that you think that a lot of our activity is vulgar or obscene. You're going to accept it. You're going to like it. And at the end of the day, you're going to support it. And a lot of conservatives are saying, nope, we're not going to do that. Same thing that we talked about a little bit earlier with the Disney company. I mean, Disney's online entertainment services are bleeding millions of subscribers right now. They've lost, the Disney stock has lost about $16 billion in value. And this is, here Here you've got, on top of that, you've got the L.A. Dodgers. They invited, they re-invited the Sisters of Perpetual Indulgence. Excuse me, the Sisters of Perpetual Indulgence, which is, I mean, that's an anti-Catholic, anti-Christian group. We've, we've talked about this plenty on the program um, to headline Pride Night, and it's not going over very well with the fan base in L.A., mainly because there are a lot of Hispanic Catholics in L.A. who take their faith seriously. And while they may not, they, they may put up with a Pride Night celebration where maybe you go to a baseball game and they're handing out pride flags or they're some other way recognizing um, the LGBTQ plus agenda during Pride Month. But 
inviting, I mean, that, that may not cause a visceral reaction coming from Hispanic Catholics and other Catholics in L.A., but when you've got a group whose purpose is to undermine, mock, malign, and otherwise demonize Catholics and Christians who really are transformed by their faith, um, when when you've got a gr- when the Dodgers decide they're the group that should get their award, that's causing the backlash. The further this goes it, the, with um, the LGBTQ agenda being in your face, the more conservatives and Christians are beginning to wake up and to push back. Now I don't know how long this is going to last, but it's long overdue. Because we can't just lay down in front of this LGBTQ plus juggernaut and allow uh, our values to be driven into the ground by people who insist that minor children should have mutilating surgeries or that they should have puberty blockers because for five minutes they think that they're a member of the other of another gender. I mean, this it it, it the backlash needs to be focused. It needs to be done in a way that's not hateful. Just like I played the the clip of this woman who said, you know, this isn't about hate. It's about parental rights. It's about my seven-year-old not being exposed to this kind of sexually explicit material of any kind until I, as the parent, make the decision that they need to learn about these things or to have information about them. All right. I want to move on, talk about an investigation um, in Vice President Biden taking bribes. When when Biden was vice president, there is evidence now being looked at by oversight committees, by Representative Comer in the House and Senator Grassley in the Senate, that where credible evidence is being presented from the FBI that Vice President Biden took up to $5 million, up to that amount of money, was involved in getting the vice president to use his influence over decisions that were were being made about foreign governments, and specifically a foreign government that's not friendly to the United States. And today is going to be a pretty significant day, as the FBI has been delaying for a month a subpoena that was given to them to turn over a document known as FD-1023, which is an FBI summary of an interview with a confidential human source. Now, the 1023 form is only used when the witness that the FBI has as a confidential source is someone that the Bureau trusts or has used and believed before. So this is not just somebody that comes that's a disgruntled agent from way far down in the ranks somewhere who has got an axe to grind against the Bureau. This is a legitimate witness who comes and and has been involved in an investigation that the Bureau has used before many times, and now they're saying that this person should be considered as highly credible. They've been used in investigations dating back to the Obama administration. So you've got Representative Comer and Senator Grassley saying that the document that this agent is going to provide that the FBI is going to provide for Comer to look at today, Grassley's already seen it, that this document describes an alleged criminal scheme involving the vice president and alleged foreign national who was waiting for an exchange of money for policy decisions. That constitutes a bribe. 
if it can be proven that a foreign national was funneling money to the Biden administration, to, I shouldn't say Biden administration, because the uh, Biden was vice president at the time, but Vice President Biden was getting this money through whatever source, whether it was some of these 20 shell companies that we know that were set up, these um, uh, LLCs that had one purpose, and that was to transfer money to individual Biden families after the money was collected by Hunter Biden and some of his business associates, associates from places like China, Ukraine, Russia, I mean, this is money flowing into the family that now Comer and Grassley are saying that there are documents coming forth, one today by the FBI, that's going to demonstrate that this money was being paid as a quid pro quo, being paid as a bribe, that it was money that was being used to get Vice President Biden to use his influence. And according to the document, this is from an adversarial country, but not China, Russia, or Ukraine. So this is, you know, um, the fact that another country is now involved is absolutely critical to this investigation and getting to the truth about how involved Biden was. Here's Comer talking about it um, this past weekend. The most reputable country that I have found that the Biden family was taking money from was China, if that tells you anything. These are countries that Fortune 500 companies wouldn't even do business in. These are the few countries on the planet that Coca-Cola and Procter Gamble don't even want to deal with. So, so there's that. this is Comer talking about the possibility of the source of some of this money. Now, according to the FBI document, it isn't China, Russia, or Ukraine, but there's already documented money coming from China and these other countries that have been coming into these 20 shell companies that I talked about earlier that are is funneling money to at least nine Biden family members. And, and this is where this investigation is headed. Um, I, you know, according to the FBI document, these sources and information that are, you know, are, are, are being revealed, the FBI thinks that the document itself is going to hurt the agency, that this is going to be something that should be suppressed because it's going to impede the FBI from using their sources to bring forth information. But Republicans in Congress are pushing back about that idea. They say they have a responsibility for oversight and that they can't perform their oversight responsibility if government agencies refuse to work with them. And they go further in saying, look, the FBI is required to hand over documents like this to courts all the time and defense attorneys when an FBI investigation results in a prosecution. So every time the FBI walks into court, they're turning over these forms to defense attorneys and the courts are making it possible for certain parts of these documents to not be revealed so that sources are not compromised. So it's possible to do that. In those cases, it is the court that makes that decision. So Republicans in Congress say, you know, they're suspicious here because the FBI in the past has covered up some of its bad behavior, particularly their illegal request to a FISA court can, in, during the crossfire hurricane operation. They, 
the, the going and asking, giving false information to the FISA court in order to get war- to uh, obtain warrants, they're saying that the FBI could be covering up information that's embarrassing to Vice President Biden and could even shield him from criminal prosecution because if this information comes to light, it could lead to charges. Now, we're a long way from that. I mean, I, we, we don't know. I don't know what's in this document. Chuck Grassley, Senator Grassley, seen it. In fact, he um, had this to say about it um, over the week or last week, I think, when he was see, had seen the document. He said there's nothing in the FBI document that is going to do anything to undermine FBI sources. Now, it took almost a month for the FBI to agree to hand this over. Okay, let's get the right one here. That was the wrong cut. Let's see if this is the right one. But if he would read it, he would know that all the excuses that he's giving us, uh, that he wants to protect the sources, and that's important to protect sources, but that's not an issue with this document the way I read it, and he ought to come forth. Okay, so they're basically saying that they need that Grassley's saying that anything that he's seen in the document, it, it hasn't revealed anything that would hurt the FBI in any way, and that the document needs to be released. Well, today, Comer is going to get to look at it. Now, and, and of course, he's over the, um, the committee in the House that's looking in to, that is providing oversight and looking into this activity, this alleged activity by the Biden family. Uh, the subpoena that produced the document says that it has to be handed over to Congress. So allowing Comer to view the document doesn't meet the requirement of the subpoena, so the FBI director, Christopher Wray, is still under the threat of being held in contempt of Congress because the, the subpoena hasn't been fulfilled until the document is released by the FBI to every member of Congress, to Congress. Uh, but we'll see what happens today after Comer has a chance to look over the document. Um, I, look, I think that um, this is that the, the mainstream, the legacy media, is paying very little attention to this. Um, I think the obvious reason the, the the media will tell you is because they believe there's nothing there. But when you've got credible FBI informants that an informant that has been used before that is considered credible by the agency and has gone into court to back up testimony in the past, when that agent comes forward and says, "I've got a document here." that can reveal where this money came from and the fact that it was being used as a bribe, uh, you can imagine, just just flip the scenario here and imagine that this was being said about Donald Trump or it was being said about George W. Bush, that somehow they were involved in this type of behavior. It'd be front-page news on The Times, The Post, um, even The Wall Street Journal. Right now, it's way buried in these publications if it's being discussed at all. Um, and, of course, it's not being talked about on CNN unless, or MSNBC unless they're saying there's nothing to see here. We need to move along. We'll see what the document reveals. All right, one final story for today that I wanted to get into because it's com- it comes from South Carolina. There was a South Carolina choir, a children's choir, that had the opportunity to go to the Capitol. Um, this choir was from Greenville. Um, it was the children's choir 
um, let's see if I can find the name here, Rushing Brook Children's Choir from Greenville, and they were given permission by the Speaker of the House. They had documentation from Representative Timmons and also Representative Wilson from South Carolina that they were invited to come to the Capitol and that they had permission to sing in the Capitol Rotunda. And so they went, they went in there. This was part of their tour. They were touring, I think, Williamsburg, Virginia. Um, they were on a historical tour. But the culmination of their trip was going to be they were going to get to sing in the U.S. Capitol. And while they were singing, Capitol Police got together and they came over and stopped the concert. As they were singing the Star Spangled Banner, two people were, you had a congressional aide and the Capitol Police, and a Capitol Police officer was saying, you're going to have to shut this down because what they're doing is against the law. Here's what it sounded like. Now, obviously, they didn't get to finish the Star Spangled Banner. They were almost through. They were over two-thirds of the way through. But somebody, if you could see this video that was posted on Twitter, somebody came up and tapped the director on the shoulder and told him he was going to have to shut it down. And the reason was because a Capitol Police officer said they had to stop singing immediately. And so then a big brouhaha started about whether or not the Capitol Police really said that, whether they actually shut down the concert. And essentially, you've got Roshbach, who is the director of the choir, as he began to talk to um, Fox News about this, and also talked to, to the Daily Signal, he said that, that absolutely the choir was shut down by Capitol Police, even though the Capitol Police say that that's not true. Roshbach says that's a lie. He says, I was shocked. I was dismayed. I was stunned. And this is David Roshbach. He's the founder and the director of the Rushing Brook Children's Choir. He said in speaking with the Daily Signal on June the 2nd, he confirmed that Congressman Timmons, Congressman Wilson, and the Speaker of the House, Kevin McCarthy, had all granted permission for them to sing in the Capitol and shortly before, shortly before the choir started singing the national anthem, Andrew Trimmel, the visitor operations manager at the architect of the Capitol, temporarily stopped them from singing. And when Rhea told Trimmel that congressional offices had granted permission, Rhea was the congressional staffer that was involved, then Trimmel talked in his earpiece and told the choir that they could start singing. And before they got to the end, of course, you heard what happened. A Capitol police officer stepped in and stopped them. Now, this could have been a misunderstanding. This could have been a miscommunication. But the thing that's aggravating about it is that the Capitol Police are insisting that they didn't do anything wrong here. I mean, that they, they put out a statement that said, recently somebody posted a video of a children's choir singing the Star Spangled Banner in the U.S. Capitol building and wrongfully claimed we stopped the performance because it might offend someone. And it's certainly possible that that wasn't said, that it wasn't because that it might offend someone. And then 
it, they went on, of course, because the singers in this situation were children, our officers were reasonable and allowed the children to finish their beautiful rendition of the Star Spangled Banner. The congressional staff member who was accompanying the group knew the rules, yet lied to the officers multiple times about having permission from various offices. And Rhea, the man who organized the trip and was involved in this, said that that's a bald-faced lie that you can clearly see in the video, and you just heard it, that the children were stopped from singing by the Capitol Police, and so that everything they said was wrong, that they did have the permission from the offices. In fact, when William Timmons, when Congressman Timmons' office found out that they that uh, the Capitol Police had stopped their performance, uh, Congressman Timmons said, well, we're going to respond by making sure that our office pays for all of the expenses for the for the the choir's trip coming to Washington, and I, I mean absolutely that's the right thing to do. Now later on, the video shows that the children were eventually allowed to sing the national anthem, but the fact that they were stopped by the Capitol Police when they had permission, not only from Timmons' office and from Wilson's office, but also from the Speaker's office. Um, uh, it, it's an outrage, and it's an outrage that the Capitol Police would not be honest about it. But it's now it's it's over. The children get their trip paid for uh, by Congressman Timmons' office, is offered to pay for the trip, and they got to, to actually finally do the concert, at least according to the video that I saw here. All right, well, that's all the time that we have for today for a Christian, oh, listen to me, Christian worldview. I'm going back to the 22 years. This is Truth in Politics and Culture with Dr. Tony Beam. We appreciate you listening to the program today. I hope you've enjoyed it, and if you had, I would appreciate it if you pass along the information about the show to others. If you want to um, sign up for the podcast, it's easy. Just go wherever you get your podcast. Look for Truth in Culture and Politics with Dr. Tony Beam. You can search it by my name or by the name of the show and then sign up for it. It'll come to your smart device for free, just like the best things in life. Have a great day. I'll see you in the morning at 730 Live.